You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Today's Bible reading comes from Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 to 20. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Lizzie, and it's great to be with you again. I've been on leave, and so uh, if you haven't met me, my name is Luke, and it's uh, great to be with you again. And so thankful for our staff team and all our volunteers have done such a wonderful job over the last few weeks. How about we pray as we get into God's Word? Father, we want to thank you for your Word. We want to thank you that uh, we discover who you are through it. We ask that that might happen tonight, that we might come to understand you uh, and who you are, what you're like, and that we might love you and respond to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, what do you know about Jesus? What's your impression of him? How would you define him? Uh, How would you describe him to other people? As a church, we say City on a Hill exists to know Jesus and to make Jesus known. So, So what exactly do you know about him? And when you're making him known, what are you saying about him? You see, we all have this kind of impression of Jesus, don't we? I'm sure we have this somewhere. We might have an image of Jesus in our head. Uh, perhaps it's shaped by all the artwork that we see uh, around us through the last 2,000 years, or it's from a TV show like The Chosen or a movie like The Passion of the Christ. It might be some picture that we have when we read about Jesus. Or it might be a set of theological ideas that define us, kind of like an architectural structure on which our ideas of Jesus are formed. But either way, whatever where we're picking these things up, we, we have this kind of idea of Jesus and it's important to get it right because it's easy for us to get it wrong. I'll give you an example. I may have used this story before, I can't remember, but I'll say it anyway. Uh, I grew up uh, learning lots about Jesus. I grew up in a Christian family. I went to a Christian school. I heard about Jesus all the time. And I remember having this distinct impression that Jesus was often just a bit exasperated, that he was kind of frustrated by the people around him. I'm not quite sure where this came from. I think there was a teacher at my school who used to sort of the way she'd read out the stories of the Gospels or something like this. It always felt like Jesus was frustrated by his disciples because they were so slow to believe. And, and, and it felt like he was a little bit impatient, that humans were, were kind of getting him down a little bit. And I think I kind of carried this idea of Jesus with me for a long time. And, and I remember, though, a number of years ago, reading the story where it says that uh, the disciples, there's some, some people who want to bring their children to Jesus and the disciples jump in and they try and stop them. And then Jesus says, no, 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 suffer the little children. Let them come to me. And, and it struck me as I was kind of thinking about this story that 
there was something very welcoming about Jesus. You see, little kids never go up to grumpy people, do they? They don't warm towards people who are constantly impatient or exasperated. And so it actually reframed the way I thought of Jesus. Now, perhaps that's a silly little story, but there's actually there's lots of ways in which it's important for us to know who Jesus is, have a clear theology and understanding of what he's like. And that's really part of the reasons why uh, this letter to the Colossians was written. Uh, written to the church at Colossae, which was established by the Apostle Paul sometime around AD 50, 55, somewhere around there. Uh, and he'd set them up and part of his preaching tour. And then he'd had to move on to other churches and start other churches. And while he was gone, there was all of these other teachers who came in who started to sort of present a message that Jesus wasn't enough, that he was insufficient, that he wasn't as impressive as some of the other pagan gods out there. And so Jesus had to, uh, Paul had to write this letter to help them see exactly who Jesus is. And right through this letter, we're going to see him reaffirm that Jesus is someone important and significant. That's why it was written for them. And I actually think it is really helpful for us in this moment as well. You see, in our broader culture, there's lots of people who would say nice things about Jesus. They would see him as a good moral teacher, a good social activist or something like that, who had an impressive impact and all of those kinds of things, but they might keep it at that. They'd see him as just a man, someone that we can take or leave, respects, but doesn't necessarily hold a sway over us. But here, as we read the book of Colossians, as we read these these verses, we're going to see that Jesus is far more important than that. It's really important for us to understand who he is, to know him so that we can make him known. And so over the next five weeks, we're going to spend a whole bunch of time in these verses, just the verses that Lizzie read out, those six verses. We're going to spend five weeks in those six verses exploring the very nature of Jesus, who he is, what he's like, how we should respond to him. And we start today with the foundational idea that underpins it all. As he's put, as we see in verse 15, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. What he's saying is that Jesus is God, and in knowing him, we can know what God is like. You see, an image shows you something, doesn't it? It's a visual, even physical representation of something else. And that's what Jesus does for us with God. God is invisible, he doesn't have a body, he's a spirit. But Jesus makes him visible to us. He shows us God. John 1.18, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Jesus took on flesh to show us God. He makes the invisible visible. And this is possible, of course, only because he is God as well. He is God himself. You see, as Christians, we believe that Jesus is two things. He's a man and he's God. He's one person, but there's two natures there, a divine nature and a human nature. We believe that he existed forever as the eternal son of God, and then in time and through history, he stepped into this world. He took on flesh and dwelt among us. John 1, we're told that Jesus was in the beginning with God, was with God, was God, and then stepped into this world. And so we have in Colossians, we read in verse 19, for instance, in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Or chapter 2, in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. 
Jesus is this extraordinary figure. One person, but two natures, divine and human, God and man. He is the man from heaven. And here we see, as Paul says, as God, walking around on the earth, he is able to show us God, to show us what God is like. I want to suggest a few things about what Jesus shows us. First of all, Jesus shows us the nearness of God. See, one of the if you were a Jew and you were the Jews were God's people and God revealed himself to them, gave them the law, gave them the Old Testament, and the God that they encountered in that, it would have been easy for them to feel like God was kind of remote, uh, overwhelming. They couldn't access this God. Just think of how Moses experienced him. We discover who Moses is, an extraordinary guy in the Old Testament, the leader of God's people, raised up to lead them out of Egypt, credited with writing the first five books of the Old Testament. He has an impressive CV, and he experiences God in dramatic ways. He sees God's miraculous hand in Egypt at the Red Sea, all of these things. He he receives God's law. We're told at one point that that God would speak to him as as he would to a friend. So he had an incredible access to God. And yet we also discover right along his story that he's frequently overwhelmed by God. Think of his first encounter with God at the burning bush. In Exodus 3, we're told that the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And we're told that Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. He he was afraid to see his glory. It was too much for him. And this remains the case. In fact, much later on in Exodus 33, after all these amazing things have happened and he's encountered God in so many beautiful ways, he actually asked God, please show me your glory. It feels like he's kind of reached that stage of the relationship where, where he can ask God to reveal his glory to him in a more profound way. But then God says, look, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. But he says, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. Now, God doesn't have a body. He's not talking about a literal face. He's talking about his glory, the the fullness of God's greatness. Moses is told he cannot see that. You can't see me because it would be too much for you. My glory will be too much. So just think about what this means. No one is closer to God than Moses, and yet even he can't come closer. And what we have here then is this picture of this immense and holy God, an overwhelming God, a God of fire and mist, of mystery and strength. Or as we read in uh, 1 Timothy 6, a God who dwells in unapproachable light. But that's the miracle of Jesus, the miracle of the incarnation. The incarnation is when God steps into the world takes on human form, Jesus adds a a human nature to his divine nature. He shows us the nearness of God. See, we were actually made to be close to God. We have this beautiful picture in the Garden of Eden where Adam and Eve are with God. There's this this moment where, where God's kind of walking with them in the garden. 
And the great tragedy of human sin is that we were then thrust out of the garden, out of God's presence, so we can't dwell with him. But God had kind of always promised to to draw near, and so he gave his people the tabernacle. It was a great tent. It was called the meeting place. But even there, there were all these limits, sort of concentric circles. Imagine that. And you had to get closer and closer, but you, you had only a few people could get right towards the front, right towards the middle of this place to meet with God. But in Jesus, all of that comes away. In John 1.14, we're told that the word, that's God, became flesh and dwelt among us. And when it says dwelt among us, it actually means tabernacled. You can put that word in there. Jesus is like the tabernacle, the meeting place of God and humanity. Jesus came to show us the nearness of God. We worship a God who is literally down to earth. This is one of my favourite things about Christianity, about our faith. See, the, the gods of other religions are often very remote, Allah would never deign to come to the earth. Far too important for that. And other religions, Eastern religions, you you can't uh, get a hold of God. Everything is God. The the bench, the seat, yourself, everything is God. So you can't kind of access that. You can't interact with that. You can't have a relationship with that. Other gods, the pagan gods, would often come down to the earth to pillage the earth for themselves. But the one true God, our God, Jesus, comes to this world to serve. We have a God who is near to us. That's what Jesus shows us. And then secondly, Jesus shows us the complexity of God. See, the Bible makes it very clear that there's only one God. That's how God introduced himself to his people. Deuteronomy 6, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The New Testament affirms this truth as well. Galatians 3, Paul asserts that God is one. Jesus says the same. He speaks of the only God in John 5. And yet even as Jesus says this, he also throughout his ministry says that he too is God, that he identifies himself as God. I'm the son of God. He describes himself as the great I am, God's great name. He claims to be able to forgive sins, which only God could do. And when he does his great miracles, he says it's in the power that he has of God. And then his disciples affirm the same. The Apostle John says he is the true God. The Apostle Paul says he is the Christ who is God over all. In fact, even the centurion at the cross, one of his enemies, says truly this man was the Son of God. So Jesus is God. And and even more than that, Jesus points to another. He speaks of the helper, the spirit of truth. So we're having this picture here of this complexity. Jesus shows us the complexity of God. There is one God, and yet we also discover that there are three persons who are God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Uh, This is what we call the Trinity. That's a a Latin word that means triad or threeness. It describes the threeness of God. As the Athanasian Creed put it in 600 AD, we worship one God in Trinity and the Trinity in unity, neither blending their persons nor dividing their essence. For the person of the Father is a distinct person, 
The person of the Son is another, and that of the Holy Spirit still another. But the divinity of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is one, and their glory is equal. So we have this strange mystery, strange way of describing God. There is one God, but there are three persons in the Godhead. How does this work? Well, kind of at the heart of understanding this is these words person and essence. And I found uh, Matt Perman and Kevin DeYoung very helpful on this. Uh, if you're following along in the sermon notes on, on the website, you'll find uh, links to a few articles that, that they've written. Uh, Perman defines essence as your being. It's what you are. And for God, his essence is his divinity, or as DeYoung puts it, his godness. As he explains, all three persons of the Trinity have this godness. The Father is God, the Son is God, and the Spirit is God. So they all have this. And yet there's, this, there's only one God and there's these distinctions between them. When you think of the word person, think of a particular individual, separate, uh, distinct from another. And that means that they have a relationship. So the Father has a relationship with the Son, the Son has a relationship with the Father, and the Father and the Son have a relationship with the Spirit. So within the Trinity we have these three persons and these relationships. Does it make sense? Of course not. <laughs> not entirely. What I'm trying to say here, though, is Jesus is showing us the complexity of God. It's still worth us trying to explore this. Some people say this is just a, a contradiction. How can there be one God if there are three persons? Well, as Perman notes, it's possible for two things to be true at once. He quotes the, the opening lines of Charles Dickens' famous novel, A Tale of Two Cities, where it says, it was the best of times and it was the worst of times. It was the same moment, but in one way of looking at it, it was the best of times, another the worst of times. And Perman says, carrying this concept over to the Trinity, it's not a contradiction for God to be both three and one because he is not three and one in the same way. He is three in a different way than he is one. God is one and three at the same time, but not in the same way. How is God one? He's one in essence. How is God three? He's three in person. Perhaps one of the, a more helpful way of thinking about it, perhaps, is the Optimus Prime principle. <laughs> I read this, I saw this recently, and I actually found it quite helpful for myself. Basically, it was saying everyone is a who and a what. So you're you and you're a person. Normally this is a one-to-one -one equation. Who am I? I'm Luke. What am I? I'm a human being. But this can become more complex, like with Optimus Prime. <laughs> Who is he? He's Optimus Prime. What is he? Well, he's a truck, but he's also a robot. I say so he's two what's and one who. <laughs> with God, He's three who's and one what. What is he? He's God. Who is he? God the Father, God the Son, and Holy Spirit. It's complex, but Jesus is showing us the complexity of God. And still we might be thinking, well, what's the point of this? Why does this matter? How does this change my life? Well, let me suggest three things. First of all, it's worth understanding this and 
contemplating it and responding to it because it's who God is. is. If we want to know God, if we want to relate to God, we need to relate to the God that is real, the God that is there, the God who reveals himself in the Trinity. Mike Bird writes, if we want to worship God as he is, we must worship God as Trinity. So it's important for us to embrace that. And then secondly, the Trinity points to how God works. See, all through the Bible, we see the persons of the Trinity taking on different roles in creation, in salvation, and we relate to them in distinct ways. So often we pray to the Father, we uh, trust the Son to save us, to do the work that was required for us to be saved, and then we experience the Spirit living inside us. And so God relates to us through the Trinity. But thirdly, it also shows us, the Trinity shows us that we can trust God's heart. We can trust that God is love. 1 John 4 says God is love. What is love? Well, essentially it's to, to reach out to another, to care for them and to, to, sh- to show an interest in them and to, to love them. That's why God made the world. But love existed before he made the world. Love doesn't start with creation. It's there in the Trinity. From eternity past, God has dwelt in love, the Father loving the Son, the Son loving the Father, the Father and the Son loving the Spirit. So the Trinity means that God has always loved, always loved another. And that's important because it shows us that we can have confidence in his creation. We can have confidence in his motives. See, God didn't make this world, didn't make us, because he felt lonely. As one writer puts it, it wasn't a man-shaped hole in God's heart that he needed to create the world. See, if that was the case, then God's love might be unreliable. It might be exploitative. We might exist purely so that he can grab something from us to fulfill himself. No, no, no. What we discover, because of the Trinity, God has always loved and creation is the overflow of that love. It's an expression of that. God loves and so he wants to share that love with us and so he makes us. As the writer Justin Delahey says, you and I aren't the result of some man-shaped hole in the Father's heart. Rather, you and I represent the overflow of the Father's eternal love for his Son, as though the Father had said, Son, this love of ours is just too good to keep to ourselves. So together with the eternal Spirit, let us make man in our own image so that others might see and experience our love. So Jesus shows us the complexity of God, a complexity of God, though, that is pointing to the character of God. That's the third thing. Jesus shows us the character of God. We see in the Trinity his love, and then we see in the life of Jesus his character. 2 Corinthians 4, God gives us the, not, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. To look at Jesus is to see what God is like. He reveals his character to us. And just think about what that means practically. See, we often wonder, don't we, what God is like, what he's thinking, how he views things. Does he, does he notice the difficulties that we're facing? Does he care about the injustice that's out there? Can we trust him? 
Well, God says, look at Jesus. Does God care about suffering? Well, look at Jesus at the graveside of Lazarus, weeping as he grapples with the tragedy of death. Does God care about uh, the unlovely, the people on the fringes? Look at Jesus. Go to the fringes. Go to those who were sick, who were rejected, who were cut off from everyone else. Does God notice injustice and, and corruption? Look at how Jesus challenges those who are in authority, who are abusing that authority. Look at how Jesus confronts the greedy. Look at how he exposes the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. Does God care about what's happening in your life? Well, Jesus said, Jesus said that God knows every hair on your head. So he knows the struggles that you're experiencing, the things that are going on in your heart, the turmoil that you feel. And, and he also knows how difficult it can be for you to follow God, how hard it can be to do what he has called you to do. Because Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane. He longed for another way. We're told in Hebrews 4 that he's been tempted, just as we are, yet without sin. And so now he offers us the confidence to go to him to look for strength. The one who found comfort offers that comfort to us. And if you're wondering if God loves you, well, look at the cross. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. We're familiar with those words, but really think about them. God so loved the world, so loved us, that Jesus stepped into the muck and the mess of this world to save us. He laid down his life so that you and I could have eternal life. That's how much God loves us. Jesus came to show us what God is like and what a God we see in Jesus. And so I want to encourage you to, to study Jesus. Now, we, we talk about knowing Jesus. How much do you know of him, about him? How often do you encounter him? The best way for us to do that, of course, is through reading the Gospels, the stories of Jesus, the biographies of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. When we read them, we're seeing what Jesus is like. A couple of years ago, I remember reading a book where it talked about the importance of learning Christ, of, of reading the Gospels. And ever since then, I've really tried to make a, a point of reading the Gospels, at least one a year, and really trying to explore and encounter Jesus as I read that. Now, it might be that you've kind of read them a bunch of times and it's easy for it to just kind of fly over the top. You kind of assume that you know it all. So, so slow down and really take the time to look at him. Maybe you can grab a commentary and kind of really get into it in greater depth. Or perhaps there's another a book about Jesus that will help uh, uh, lift it up for you. 
You could read Encounters with Jesus by Timothy Keller, or uh, I've got a book at home called The Scriptures That Testify About Me, which is basically a whole bunch of essays which point to how Jesus fulfills the Old Testament. So when you're reading the New Testament, you can see how Jesus lines it all up. There's another book that I've got called Gentle and Lowly, which is by Dane Ortland. It's basically a book about how Jesus has a heart for the sinner and those who are suffering. We need to know Jesus, to encounter him, so that we will love him more. So Jesus shows us God. He shows us the nearness of God, the complexity of God, the character of God. But fourthly, I want to suggest as we finish up that Jesus also shows us who we are. He doesn't just show us God. He shows us ourselves. See, there's a similarity between us and Jesus. Jesus is the image of God, and we as humans are made in the image of God. Genesis 1.27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. Now, there's obviously some difference here. Jesus uh, is God himself. We are made in the image of God. We're created. But there's some crossover here too. Jesus was there to show what God is like and we as the image of God are there to be represent God in the world and to show the creation and each other what God is like. In fact, that's why we're made in his image. We've been given this extraordinary responsibility. God has given us dominion over his world. Psalm 8, you've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. That's us and crowned him with glory and honour. You've given him dominion over the works of your hand. You've put all things under his feet. God has given us this incredible honour and privilege, and he equips us for that by making us in his image. So we are given these abilities to, to show what God is like, to rule as God would rule. But that honour, that privilege, points to the tragedy of human sin. You see, we've rebelled against God and we've lost that perfection. We were made in his image and likeness, but, but it's been spoiled, it's been marred. It's, it's still there. We're more spectacular than anything else in all creation. We can still do things that other creatures can't do. We can still point to his greatness, and yet we're far from what we could be and what we were made to be. And I think you see that in the way that we abuse the good gifts that God gives us. He gives us power, but so often we use that power for ourselves, for our own glory. He gives us wisdom to know how to do things, and we, we turn that to cunning. We use our strength to resist God and to keep others out. And in so doing, we, we defame God. We were made to reflect his goodness to each other and to the creation, and instead we present this imperfect image of God. R.C. Sproul says, when we sin as the image bearers of God, we're saying to the whole creation, to all of nature under our dominion, to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field, this is what God is like. This is how your creator behaves. Look in his mirror, look at us, and you will see the character of the Almighty. We say to the world, God is covetous. God is ruthless, God is bitter, God is a murderer, a thief, a slanderer, an adulterer. God is all of these things that we are doing. 
on a tragedy. But this is also where we see the wonder of the gospel. You see, the good news of Christianity is that God sent Jesus to redeem and restore us to our glorious calling, to forgive us and renew us. Philippians 2 talks about how Jesus is equal with God, has the great glories of God, but he doesn't hold on to that. He doesn't see that as something to be grasped to himself, but instead makes himself nothing, stepping into this world. And then verse 8, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is how Jesus saves us. He becomes obedient for us. He, he lives the life that we have failed to live. He honours God as we have not honoured him. And then he takes on our sin and pays for it. He deals with it at the most ultimate cost, death on a cross. Our sin deserves punishment and Jesus takes it for us. Jesus stepped into this world. He took on flesh. He took on a human body so that that body could be broken for us. but also so that it could be renewed. You see, God is committed to remaking us in his image. We were made good, that image has been marred, but through Christ it is restored. Romans 8, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. If we come to God in repentance and say sorry and ask for new life, then he will give it to us and he will restore us in the image of the Son. Colossians 3, we put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. God is committed to starting again. And, and he takes the, the image of God that's within us and he renews it, restoring it, making us more and more like him. It's a long process, but it's one that he's committed to. 2 Corinthians 3, we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of God are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. So it's progressive. We're moving closer and closer. And 1 John 3, he says, you don't even know what it's going to be like, but when we see him face to face, then you'll be transformed. So God's promise is that even though the work is slow, the destination is clear. We were made to see God and one day we will see him face to face and we will be like him. And what does that look like for us practically? Well, lots of things. We're transformed to become like Jesus more and more. What I suggest is I've got this theory that I've been working on. I think it's true. <laughs> But I want to suggest to you that there's, there's specific ways in which we reflect our God, our creator. You see, we represent God in lots of ways, but our God, we are made in the image of an infinite God. And how does he express himself? Well, he expresses himself right across the whole breadth of humanity. So we are each unique and beautiful in lots of different ways. And I suspect that there is a way in which we reflect God's image in specific ways, in a unique way. 
It's the thing that makes you you. The, the thing that shows the world that you're different is also the thing which points people to God. Take my wife, Ivana, for instance. She comes at 9am, so some of you might not have met her. But I'll, I'll still remember the very first time I saw her. I was working in a bookshop and we had a mutual friend and she walked into the, the bookshop and she looked across at me and she smiled. And there was this smile. If you've ever met her, you know this smile because it was so warm and it just spoke to who she is, this loving, caring person. In fact, just a few months ago, we were setting up for the service over here and we were praying and, and there was this big commotion out in the foyer. I'm like, what's going on? Is this some weirdo? No, it was Ivana who was just walking through the foyer and like greeting everyone and kissing them on the cheek and giving people COVID and, and whatever. And, and it was just her, just going through the room and, and just spreading this life and love, spreading her Ivana-ness. Really, I think it's how God has made her. And in those moments, we see what God is like. We see something of the warmth and the beauty and the love of God. And we all do this in different ways. Our God is infinite and his image spreads right through all of us. So this week, I want to give you some homework. I want you to ask someone close to you how they see God in your life. What is it about you that they particularly love that points to the greatness of our God? Maybe you could ask your spouse, you could ask your, your mum or your friend or your brother. What is it that the unique ways in which they see something good and beautiful in you because that points to God? And now God wants to bring that out more and more, whatever it is in our lives, there's lots of things, but here's one particular way in which we can bring that out and show God to the world. So we have this extraordinary honour and privilege as humans. We were made in the image of God. And so we were made both to see God and to show him, to know him and to make him known, to see his greatness, his complexity, his closeness, his love, his goodness, and then also to see ourselves and to celebrate that in our lives, in our relationships throughout the world. I loved how Alicia put it in her testimony. She's encountered God. She knows God. She talked about Jesus as, I've never met someone so kind, so loving and forgiving. Like the Jesus that she knows isn't just uh, this random idea. It's not just words on a page. It's a personal being that she has a relationship with. And then she said, I can't wait to see him. And she will see him. And if you trust in Jesus, you will see him too, face to face. You'll see his glory in a glorious way. And you'll be transformed to be like him. What a glorious future. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for uh, this passage, so rich in theology and depth. We ask that we might understand it more deeply over the coming weeks and that we might come to, to know you and love you. Jesus, thank you for coming into this world. We worship you as God. We thank you that you took on flesh and dwelt among us. 
We thank you that you show us that you are near, that the God we serve loves us, that the God we serve understands us, is close to us, and is worthy of imitation. Lord, we ask that we might follow you, that we might be transformed more and more into your perfect image for your glory. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.